Welcome everyone, Karthik Ramakrishnan here. I'm a professor of public policy at UCR. I also direct our Center for Social Innovation. We are so thrilled to co-sponsor this event with Zocalo Public Square. Uh, the issue of community media, especially coming out of the census, is a very important one for our center. We look forward to the decade of work ahead to make sure that we support uh, media that serves communities of color to make sure that we all have an equal voice in the future of our democracy. Thank you. We hope you enjoy the program and over to you, Moira. Welcome everyone. My name is Moira Shuri and I'm the executive director of Zocalo Public Square, a creative unit of Arizona State University. We are proud to partner with the Center for Social Innovation at UC Riverside for this event. At Zocalo, our mission is to connect people to ideas and to one another. Everything we do is free and everyone is welcome. We publish original writing and convene events like the one we're watching today. Find out more on our website, zocalopublicsquare.org. We're living through a time when disinformation is more pervasive than an invisible virus. The ways to combat this are complex. And today we're presenting a panel that offers us a path to building and recognizing messengers of truth. And this discussion is in the able hands of our moderator, Joanne Griffith, managing editor of the California Newsroom a groundbreaking collaboration of NPR and local public radio stations around the state, including Zocalo's great partner, KCRW. It serves California with a special emphasis on boosting news coming from underserved communities and overlooked parts of the state. Joanne previously worked at the radio show Marketplace and has produced shows for the BBC. Over to you, Joanne. Thank you, Moira. I'm really delighted to speak today with three thoughtful, impressive journalism, journalism leaders who also can kind of talk to us about regulation as well, or really to consider how we can positively support community journalism in addition to stopping the spread of disinformation in local news. I am going to say one very small thing because we are living in the time of COVID where we are all at home with Zoom. If you hear random sounds in the background, then you will understand that I have a very small human here in my house who is doing his very, very level best to, to be a little bit quiet. So just wanted to flag that in case you're like, what is going on at her house? Um, but hopefully at quieter homes than I have, I do have three guests with me here today. We have Paulette Brown-Hines. She is the founder of Voice Media Ventures. And I'm gonna look down while I'm reading this because these are three very impressive bios that we have here. She is the second generation publisher of The Voice and Black Voice News. She's also the co-founder of the new initiative, Media in Color. She has over 30 years experience in media, not revealing her age at all, but she has a lot of experience in media and has served as the lead Black media strategist for a number of statewide political campaigns, including the campaigns of both Governor Schwarzenegger and Newsom. She's on the board of the California News Publishers Association and was board president in 2019. Paulette, so great to have you here today. Yeah. We also have Anne Ravel. She's an attorney and professor of UC Berkeley Law. She was nominated to the Federal Election Commission by President Obama back in 2013 and served as a commissioner from 2013 to 2017. She served as chair of the FEC in 2015. She was also chair of the California Fair Political Practices Commission. Her current work focuses on digital platforms and public policy and strategies to address digital disinformation, which obviously is going to be very helpful to us today. Hi, Dean Anne. 
And then last but not least, we have Sarah Betty Berman. She is the CEO of the American Journalism Project, which uses venture philanthropy to support local newsrooms. She's formerly global head of public affairs at Teach for All. She's also an advocate for the performing arts and serves on the board of directors of the Mark Morris Dark Group. Thank you everyone for joining me today. Thank you. So we're going to start with, you know, we're all, we're all journalists, we're all kind of program makers, we've all kind of worked um, kind of in this area, but it's really important to kind of see set and really kind of help people with our definitions. So I'm going to start with you, Sarah Beth, when we talk about local news, what does local news actually mean to you? Yeah, it's a good question and worth defining because I think local news can mean different things to different people. Um, from our perspective, when we talk about local news, we're talking about original reporting. We're talking about the act of reporters going to city hall, to school board meetings, digging into business interest, holding powerful account to account, and, and really giving communities the information they need to be able to take informed action, to show up at the ballot box with the information that they need, to engage in their communities with the information that they need. So, I mean, if I had to put it succinctly, I'd say this is about original reporting, about institutions, people, and power for local communities. And I, and I distinguish that last part because there are national news organizations that will send in reporters to a local community and they'll report on a place in, in across our country. But the purpose of the reporting is for a national audience and it's not grounded in the context of understanding the community, of knowing the various dynamics that are happening in a community. And so I, that, that I think really distinguishes local news. Paulette, what is local news? Yeah, uh, I'm, you know, it's a good, a good question. Um, I often use local news and community media interchangeably. I think um, for me, it's important um, uh, public information source um, that informs and educates, you know, that community. It could be a traditional uh, news organization. Um, or it could be other, uh, other sources of information uh, that uh, communities rely on um, that, that uphold journalistic principles of like truthfulness, accuracy, transparency. Um, within that sector, though, I do see diversity. So you could have you know, corporate owned media outlets will often have a very different relationship with their community, community than say a community weekly or an ethnic news organization or organization supporting communities of color. Um, uh, but primarily for me, it is um, a local news organization really primarily focuses on serving that local community. It's kind of that local uh, news and information source. And Anne, what's your definition? Well, I would have uh, combined both Sarah Beth <laughs> and Paulette's, um, but I, I actually always think that local news is kind of interactive with the community. And so they understand not just going to city hall, but they understand what the interests and needs are of the community for civic engagement or for just understanding policies. And also in a big way, and this is something I care a lot about is investigative journalism um, to find out, to get to the root of uh, looking at problems by the government mainly, but sometimes by businesses in the community. So it generally, it's kind of like a community dialogue and I see it with 
both community and ethnic newspapers. Nobody's talked about TV and radio stations, but they sometimes can also have that play that part in local communities. Um, but there can also be some more, um, you know, sort of corporate, I guess, uh, newspapers. Um, I'm thinking always of my local newspaper, which is the Mercury News that used to get awards for investigative reporting in the local community and now is a shadow of its former self and has no investigative reporters. So those that's what I think of when I think about local journalism. And it's interesting that you talked there about investigative journalism because so much about making sure that we have accurate information is also about making sure that our journalists have the tools to be out in the field to, you know, kind of hold um, kind of public policy to account, to hold um, elected officials to account. And sometimes when that is lacking, that can be where kind of disinformation kind of creeps in. Um, but Paula, I want to hear from you when we talk about disinformation, you know, from your experience, from your decades in the industry, how does disinformation kind of manifest itself? It feels like a word that we're hearing, you know, we've heard so much more over the past kind of four or five years, but, you know, disinformation has a history that goes back much further than that, doesn't it? Yes, no, no, it does. And, and in, you know, looking at definition um, disinformation where there's that kind of deliberate and intentional um, uh, dissemination of false and misleading information, uh, as opposed to like misinformation, which isn't necessarily intentional spreading of, of falsehoods. Um, so it's, it's very deliberate. It manifests itself um, in, in different ways. And I just some of the work that we've done recently, um, and of course, we know some of the big examples, but I'll use, you know, some that like the work with the census that we did where there were th threats from bad actors um, spreading false information, like, you know, who's supposed to participate in the census, how to participate in the census um, is designed to discourage uh, certain populations from participating um, and threaten the integrity of the count. Uh, primarily for political reasons, right? There's that disenfranchisement that comes when uh, with representation in Congress. Um, with elections, um, not, and I'll just use an example that's more of a local example to California. Um, you have disinformation um, used historically as a political tool. Um, and just this last election, I know people were following the, um, the um, election of, um, or the defeat of Mayor Michael Tubbs in Stockton. And there was a recent article about, you know, uh, a Facebook um, dis disinformation campaign, you know, targeting him. Um, and it was engineered by, you know, political enemies. And they released this kind of steady stream of false narratives about his activities as mayor. Um, and, you know, he ended up surprisingly not winning a second uh, term. Um, coronavirus, of course, disinformation on stopping the spread of the virus politically motivated, you know. Um, so, and of course, I'm sure we'll talk more about that with the, um, the, uh, the past administration, um, but it manifests itself in so many, many different ways. Um, but it's important to, to, to know that it's, you know, it's deliberate and it's intentional. And Sarah Beth, when we kind of think then about, and Anne, I want you to kind of chime in on this too, when we kind of start thinking about then the role of social media and um, kind of digital platforms, newsletters, how does that really kind of feed into how disinformation is spread? Because so often, you know, when we think about local news, it's newspapers, which we have seen, you know, I think the figures from the, the, the kind of expanding news desert project 
um, from, from UNC, just from like 2018 and um, through to 2002, or sorry, 2020, we saw something like 300 news outlets close in California, you, you know, close. We saw another 6,000 journalists lose their job. It may actually even be more now that we're heading into, into 2021 and beyond. But when we look at the, the social media aspects of all of this, kind of how much of a role does that play in, in, in the kind of spread of disinformation? Yeah, uh, you know, this, the spread of disinformation is like the weeds that have grown up in the vacant lot that have been left by the decline of local news. I mean, you, you just mentioned the dynamics. This has been like a slow moving crisis over the last decade and a half that social media and the internet have really created, which is that we have completely disrupted the business model. For 150 years, local news relied on advertising dollars to support the journalism. And that has been basically entirely displaced onto the internet. And what that's meant, you know, from afar, that can really look like the natural rise and fall of an industry. You know, some industries, a lot of industries were really disrupted by the internet. But in this case, the decline of local news has had really dire impacts on our communities, on people, on our democracy. And, you know, the data really backs it up. It's actually really fascinating. There, there's data that shows that when a local newspaper goes away, voter participation drops. Like people are less likely to vote if they, aren't, if they, don't, if they don't have information about their communities. It makes sense. If you don't know about the election, if you don't know about the issues, why would you go vote? And it, civic engagement drops. People are less likely to get involved in their communities. They're less likely to run for office if they don't know about the issues that matter to their community. And there's also data that shows that when a newspaper goes away, it has impacts on polarization, that people are less likely to split their ticket between parties in communities where a newspaper has gone away. And what has filled the void is echo chambers of social media and national media. I mean, it's really, I, I recently read um, a study that showed that people have stayed consistently um, knowledgeable about who their national politi politicians are. Like people know who these national po political celebrities are, AOC, Donald Trump, Joe Biden. People don't know and they decreasingly know who are their, who's, who's their governor? Who are their state elected officials? But the fact is the, the, the things that matter to your life play out in your community. And frankly, just from a monetary standpoint, most of your tax dollars are going to your, your community, your state. Like you should know about that. Yeah, like know who your local judges are and how to, how to be able to vote for them. I mean, Anne Ravel, um, you know, kind of your work has looked at kind of, you know, strategies around kind of addressing um, disinformation in, in digital spaces. Kind of tell us a little bit about that and kind of what some of the solutions perhaps that, that you were able to stumble upon. Yeah, well, let me um, add one thing. And what I'm, I'm the head of the, the director of a digital, what I call digital deception, because I think it's a more accurate word than, than even disinformation because people aren't clear about that. And it's obvious that it's purposeful and intended to impact um, not only our society, but especially our democracy and politics. Um, and so the work that I've been doing around that 
is to try to figure out where this all comes from, just what your question was. And it's clear that a lot of the origins of this disinformation actually comes from elected officials. Um, and sometimes those um, national news media that are still in existence because they're 24 seven newsrooms and they have to fill the void and they're more interested in outrage than they are in facts or opinion rather than actually giving uh, detailed information about things to people. And then they get spread to the internet. And the problem with the internet and the platforms is that they can take one of these um, false uh, statements, whether it be about the virus, whether it be about how African-Americans shouldn't vote because it's bad for them to vote, uh, and, and they can spread it to millions of people, and they have, and mostly it's false information and the most um, outrageous information and the most inflammatory information that gets spread, and it's done in part by algorithms of the, the social media, which use those because they also have so much information on all of us, um, not just from the platforms, but they, they take it from other places. And for example, uh, Facebook has been known to have far more detailed, precise information about every single American than the US government has about them. And they're able to utilize that and micro-target with information that's inflammatory to create, for example, what we saw on the 6th of the groups that went to the Capitol because they can go to little dark parts of the, of the web. Um, and so I, you know, what I, we've been thinking about because being in um, campaign finance and I know that there are a lot of um, laws that are constitutional uh, that have been upheld where you can actually demand greater accountability, greater transparency, for example, in the uh, kind of micro-targeting that is being used and making people be able on the platforms to be able to opt in rather than opt out and also to make them be more transparent about the algorithms that they're using to spread this information to people. And there's many other um, ways that we're thinking about and hoping, for example, that uh, the Biden administration will be amenable to um, pressing for some of this because we know that this is what is undermining not only local news, and you're absolutely right, it is uh, undermining civic engagement, and it's polarizing people, and it's causing uh, violence. And those are things that are patently illegal. So you got me on my high horse, and I probably didn't answer your question. <laughs> no, that, that's fine. Let, let me kind of just jump, jump in there, though, because what all of this seems to say is that we're talking about disinformation and we're going to kind of very much get back into that in a moment but this also speaks to media literacy you know if you are not you know you need to know where to go to you know set your Facebook account to particular types of settings or you need to know when you read a headline so perhaps to kind of question oh, 
is 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 that quite right? Mm-hmm. Um, so Sarah Beth Berman, just to kind of to, to kind of bring you in here, you know, how much of this is disinformation, but how much of this also is kind of educating the audience, helping the audience understand, like, here's what you should be looking out for. Here are some of the things that may be a little bit suspect, or you may need to question. Essentially, like, what are we doing about the media literacy part of this? Media literacy is definitely extraordinarily important. Uh, last year, there was this study, um, a, a, an international test called PISA, where they test 15-year-olds all around the world and compare their results. And one of the most striking stats from there was that only 12% of American students could tell the difference between fact and opinion. So that matters. But the other thing is, I don't, want, I don't think we can pretend that you can just go to people who have come to believe misinformation and say, here are the facts. These are the facts. Now you know the facts. Now you believe the facts. Like, that's not how this is going to work. This is about trust. And we have eroded trust. We are, we are an all-time low in terms of trust in our media. And so, you know, we think about January 6th, where there were people who were sieging the Capitol, and they had a sense of reality. And then there were people watching those images in horror with an entirely different sense of reality. And the question you have to ask is, how do you begin to come to a shared reality? And I think that that has to start in communities. I mean, we are, the data shows that people trust local news much more than they trust national news. They're much more inclined to trust lo- trust local news. And frankly, it makes sense. I mean, you build trust through relationships and, you know, you can, you can have a relationship with your local news. Anne was saying like local news is about having, really having a relationship with your community. You know, over the last decade and a half, 60% of journalists have lost their jobs, which frankly means it's just a lot less likely that you've ever met a journalist. Oh, and it's certainly a lot less likely that when you read an article, you feel any relationship to it. You know, it's not because local news has gone away. Like, it's unlikely that you've read an article about a store that you patron or a school system that you send your kids to. So I think, like, a lot of beating back misinformation and really, like, confronting these separate realities we're living in is going to be the act of rebuilding trust and that's going to have to happen in communities and that's why I think we just have to be really leaning into how do we build back local news um, and I'm excited to talk about because we, we, we think there is like really really a lot of potential out there for for how you go about doing that. I want to I jump in on this. Actually what, one second I do actually want to go to Paulette because you know she's this is very much kind of where her work is concentrated you know um, kind of with the California Publishers Association and also kind of with Black Voices. Paulette, talk to me about that, that building trust in community part, because, you know, again, if we're talking about local newspapers, we're not necessarily talking about publications that are being made available to communities of colour, but also what does it look like when you're trying to provide and build trust for communities that are non-English speakers? So talk to us a bit about that particular challenge, because it's it, it's not straightforward at all, is it? No, no. And there is that there is that national, you know, um, cable news that you know people are being fed this kind of steady diet of of uh, of information that is influenced by political agendas and political ideology. Um, um, I think at the local level, like Sarah's saying, is where we can make a difference. Um, I, you know, I think of the work of that I do, 
um, being very grounded in the black press and of the, the, the history and traditions of the black press as kind of vital trusted messengers. And that's a lot of the work I do statewide um, when I do consulting is, is utilizing um, um, the black, black press as, as, as messen trusted messengers in their community, keep, keeping the kind of collective history, the, you know, the, the delivering the essential news and information and kind of calling out discrimination and racism is that history. And it was really founded to combat, when you think of the history of the black press to kind of combat disinformation about the community, like, you know, for 200, almost 200 years ago, actually, we're getting close to the uh, 200 year founding of the black press. And, you know, some say it was uh, founded uh, because, um, you know, black America was ignored, but I would say it wasn't just ignored, but it was demonized and criminalized, right? Um, it, and you can look at even some of the, the recent racial reckoning conversations uh, and apologies by, by mainstream newspapers, um, you know, that kind of really lay out that history of racism and how they uh, treated communities. Um, um, but I think for uh, black press and then other um, communities of color, media and communities of color that's been active and thriving, growing in, the, in their community. You know, we talk about news deserts and I was recently looking at, I think it was a report from UCR on um, ethnic media in California. And there were over, um, there were almost, almost 300 uh, um, outlets and communities of color in California. And when you look at the research on news deserts, there's there's a gap. There's a there's there's some missing because they're kind of there working in their communities and they're not seen necessarily by by researchers. Um, even uh, so, the work we're doing in California is really to identify and try to map the news ecosystem in communities of color. So um, you have um, those uh, uh, outlets are serving that same type of role of trusted messenger and. We have a, um, this is an example, a case study we'll be releasing um, soon on the LA media table um, called Mobilizing Trust and Inclusive Communications. Uh, we were a part of an activation of that media table, about 25 outlets um, in LA, LA uh, mainly in LA City, but around LA County uh, as well. Um, and this was something leading up to the November election, just to give an example. So you remember the Trump administration was kind of hollowing out the US Postal Service. We had mail-in ballots um, preferred um, because of the pandemic. We had these unauthorized ballot boxes that were popping up throughout the state. And so there was a lot of questions about how do you vote during this pandemic? And there was some intentional kind of suppression, right? Of, of especially in communities of color. So what we did, and I'm excited, I can't wait till we actually release this um, um, report, was engage 20 uh, community media outlets representing uh, 10 ethnic communities of seven languages. Um, we did a combination of paid campaign, but then there was just a lot of coordinated commentary, op-eds, amplifying the voices of um, trusted community messengers um, in, in, in we were messages of voting justice, integrity of the ballot box, how to vote safely. There were a lot of questions and concerns in the polling about how to vote safely um, during a pandemic. And what's great is um, you know, part of the, the reader surveys that we've done and, and we're trying to work better. And this is something that as a, as a sector and industry, we need to do a better job of measuring impact 
um, of the message. So it, we incorporate that into the work we do. Um, over 90% of the readers recalled seeing content about the voting process. Over 80% found, uh, found it helpful to better understanding their voting options um, and helping them make a plan. Um, so the work we're doing with these outlets is really elevating trust and combating disinformation. So I think that, like the, the kernels of, you know, what we're talking about are there. You know, um, I think we need to do a better job of, um, like I said, measuring the impact. Um, and we're, California, we're definitely, you know, moving in that direction. Um, but it's, so it's, while we have the, local, the, the national issues, I think within communities we're seeing there is um, um, some uh, opportunities um, uh, to combat that disinformation. And sorry, I kind of went, went to Paula. I know you had wanted to, to jump in, slide in there. <laughs> I just wanted to um, respond to your question about um, media literacy, literacy because, I mean, you know when it relates particularly to politics, that those people who are invested in reading national politics, for example, they are already polarized. So they, it's like they're on a team and they just read the things for their particular team and other people are kind of checked out. And what has been shown, for example, on uh, when Facebook or Twitter or somebody indicates that something is false, um, people don't care. They really don't care. They just read it anyway. They believe it anyway. They don't, the fact that they have put some notation on it that there's falsehood doesn't impact people's reading and beliefs. Um, and the same was true. I know the Knight Foundation, um, because I'm on the Markle Center board, that they were working together on um, having trusted a T that says it's this is from a trusted source versus something else. And that too was shown to be irrelevant to people. So I'm not sure that that having people learn literacy of and understand is really going to do the trick. I think that what Paulette just said and what Sarah Beth said is probably a much better way to um, enable local journalism, which is much more trusted. There's been surveys about it and you know that is more likely to make a difference well and it's you know and you know to your point it's it's also you know the people like when you when you look at those platforms and and those media outlets they're so tied to their community so even when we were doing work around the census we were asking we were doing these focus groups and we were asking people like who do they trust like if someone told you you know that you should fill out your census form who do you trust and it was it was the person at the nonprofit that helped them with their their issue. You know, it, it wasn't even necessarily the elected official. Like we were we were looking at influencers, and then you know you know we're working with consultants who are talking about you know the the athletes or the movie stars or you know or even these elected officials. And we were hearing from the people like, no, I trust you know Joe who is the one who helps me with my uh, bus pass. You know, so we, we had to look at who are, those, who are those real trusted messengers and then try to incorporate that into the reporting that was, that was, that was done. Um, but yeah, it's, it, it is, it's really so hyper-local. But even having the, the trusted messengers, as you put it, like I love that phrase, Paula, even having those trusted messengers, you know, we all had this conversation in our, in our pre-call, we all said the same thing. 
that none of us have an attention span anymore. <laughs> you know, we look at the headline and it's like, oh, that looks interesting. And we hit, retweet, share, yeah. what have you, or we'll kind of put it in a WhatsApp chat and, and kind of send it on without necessarily kind of reading um, the substance of what's in there. So how do we, even if we, we kind of have a substantial and sustained, and Sarah Beth, I want to get into this with you, that the kind of, you know, the, the how we finance and how we kind of fully support our local news endeavors going forward. But how do we get around this kind of this very kind of big elephant in the room where people just don't have the attention span anymore? It's like, Paulette, not to call you out, it's like, how many books did you say that you've read this year? Maybe, or last year, maybe like one or two? Yeah. Um, because we just don't either have time or we just don't have the patience or the, the, or the attention span just to be able to really look at something and look at it critically. So how do we get around that? And I'll, you know, actually, Paula, I'll start with you, go to you, Sarah, and then go to you, Anne. I do not, you know, I don't have an answer for that one. Like, like, like I told you, I'm even, I, I, I'm even I, uh, guilty of, you know, tweeting things that I haven't read the full story. Like I look, I mean, I, it, for me, it's like, okay, if it's a trust, for me, if it's a trusted source, and I read, you know, the headline and maybe part of it, but I, you know, um, I, I'm so guilty, as I said, of, of that. I definitely don't have, uh, don't have an answer. I'd love to hear uh, from my, my fellow panelists. How we there are some really interesting news organizations that really recognize this, but recognize also their role in trying to meet people where they are. So we just invested in this organization called Documented, which is out of New York City. They serve um, immigrant populations. Their goal is to serve local news for immigrant populations. They've created a huge WhatsApp channel filled with a Spanish language WhatsApp channel where they are sharing the reporting that they're doing through that channel and they're hearing back from their audience so that's informing their reporting. So we, we can't be tied to old mediums of how we deliver news, but we still have to be out there delivering. There's another organization out there called Outlier Media um, in Michigan. They are they're creating a text-based platform. They're in, interacting with their, their audience through text. They rec their goal is to serve low-income communities and really, and really meet people where they are and, and they're on text. And so they are, um, they've created a platform so that they can both hear from their community, understand what their information needs are, but also serve back the investigations they're doing and the service reporting they're doing. So I think, you know, lo local news, we need local news and it can't just look like newspapers being delivered by a paper boy on your doorstep. It has to evolve. Yeah. And? Well, I still like, um, old local news and I do too don't, don't get me wrong I love, I love the newspaper on right. the uh, yeah just just kidding of course but um you know I think of course that what's happened in part that people have such little attention span is because of the development of the internet and platforms and how you just look at the headline or you just look at um, somebody's viewpoint, and since you're on that same team uh, politically or for whatever reason, or it's your friend and you believe it, you you don't bother delving into it. Um, I don't think it's because we're all busy. I mean, we are all busy, but uh, it is possible uh, to get actual facts. And so what has happened, I think, with this is 
that people just look at at issues like their litmus tests. And you and I talked a little bit about this because it bothers me. It's true even in national news where there are articles that have these inflammatory headlines. And, and one example of that had to do with uh, Hillary Clinton and the emails. Um, and then no one delved down into the depth of the article which essentially rebutted some of it. Um, but as a result, it's that headline that gets spread everywhere. And that's what everybody believes. They're not going to read the depth of the article anyway, because it's been spread this way on the internet. And I do think that, that some of this is um, the fault of what has happened to national news as well. And that we have to go back to what we used to have which were truly journalistic principles about, you know, not just balance, not just making sure that you covered, in fact, Trump got covered a whole lot more in the 2016 election than Hillary Clinton ever did. And I think that what we really need is um, more thoughtfulness at the top as well as at the bottom. At the crux and at the core of all of this though, is funding, you know, local news, national news, um, newspapers, radio, TV, um, you know, kind of social only platforms all need funding. And we've seen as, you know, the numbers that we quoted from the, the UNC um, University of North Carolina um, expanding news desert project between 20, 2018 and 2020, that we saw the loss of, of 300 news outlets, um, the loss of 6,000, um, journalism jobs, and that's just in the space of two years, not even 15 years that they've actually been doing this research. So, Sarah Beth Berman, like, how do we tackle? I know, like, this is this is this is your thing. This is your jam. You know, how do we tackle this part about revenue? You know, especially here when you know the impact of COVID. We saw even just here in California, where I work, pretty much every station um, that I work with either had to or they had to reduce staff um, because they've really taken a hit with, with underwriting um, and other kind of revenue sources from you know foundations and so on so how do we how do we tackle the money part like how do we keep the money coming in so that journalists can be hired publications radio stations tv outlets etc can actually provide that local news that, that people so so much need this is the question. This is the money question. <laughs> this is the money question. Let's go. <laughs> um, no, like the fundamental question we need to ask ourselves is how do we finance and sustain an informed citizenry? Like we call it local news, but that's what we're talking about. How do we do it? We have relied on a market transaction for a long time. It worked really well. Advertising dollars, the original micro-targeting, that worked really well to support local news. It's no longer there. So I think the, the model that is most promising, the one that we're really seeing is working in different places around the country, is looking at these as civic institutions, looking to the model of other institutions that are fundamental to our society. The, ball, you know, the ballet, I, I, you mentioned that I'm involved in the arts, the ballet, the opera. These are institutions that we know are really important to our communities, um, and that we finance and sustain as nonprofit organizations that have um, the organizations that we that we're supporting are they have 
philanthropic revenue that plays a very big role, but they're building diversified revenue models. So they're bringing in some advertising money because there is still some advertising money out there. They're getting their readers to, to become members. I mean, we saw many, many news organizations had huge surges actually in memberships because people see they're sitting at home and they get that this is important and they're reading. Um, we think philanthropists have a very important role to play here. I think philanthropists across this country should be adding journalism and specifically local journalism to their portfolio. Because if you care about education, you should worry about whether or not school boards are covered. If you care about the environment, you need to worry about whether or not there are journalists who are covering carbon emissions from their local businesses. Um, and the list goes on and on. Um, and so what we're seeing is a new generation of organizations that are using a nonprofit mixed revenue model. Um, and I also think there is a real role for public dollars in the long run. And there is some work happening at the state level and at the national level to follow the lead of other advanced democracies that put a lot more tax dollars into a thriving free press. So all of those things, I think, are, are leading us to believe there is a path towards financing and sustaining local news. Um, some of the organizations that we're funding, I'll mention one. So one of the organizations we're funding is um, an organization called Vermont Digger. It's, in, uh, it's now the largest newsroom in Vermont. It is powered through, as I said, you know, diverse revenue. They have major gifts, small dollar gifts, they have ad revenue, they run events, they've been able to sustain this newsroom. And they were recently credited by Senator Leahy, their senator, for having a really crucial role in the spread of accurate information about COVID-19. You know, Vermont has been one of the most successful states in the country in terms of um, maintaining, in terms of the spread of the virus. And, and People credit VT Digger for just extraordinarily consistent information out there um, about, about the virus, daily newsletters, FAQs, and fascinatingly, it showed up in revenue. They had their best year yet in terms of major gifts. Donors appreciated the values that they were playing in society, in their community, and in re revenue, they've had the best year of memberships yet. It, you know, right. I, I would, I'd love to add, you know, what Sarah Beth, I would totally agree with what Sarah Beth is saying about the mixed revenue model. Like we're just seeing that uh, throughout, throughout the state with the work we do, it, it's not going to be one stream. It's not going to, it's no longer going to be, you know, advertising revenue. Philanthropy will play an important, important role. Um, audience supported uh, journalism is, is, is also in an event. I mean, there's so many different, and I think you need to diversify your revenue streams. If, if the pandemic didn't teach you anything, it is teach, teaching you to have, have a diverse uh, revenue streams. We've been able to, in California, for instance, raise money through Media Color uh, from philanthropy, and it's not the traditional uh, media uh, uh, philanthropic organization. So these are the the foundations that care about you know health health of of, of Californians care about in you know, our civic life care about uh, um, economic disparities and so they want to support journalism um, and and need a, and believe we need a strong um, um, a journalism ecosystem um, in the state and they want to help support that. So we're we're developing this kind of resiliency project where we focus on business model transformation for more of our legacies, ethnic media um, outlets, but also looking at like programs to support new 
um, new journalists, you know, like new uh, journalism entrepreneurs. Um, but it's going to definitely be diverse. I um, mean, I think we, um, and even at the local level, you know, we're looking at what's happening with community foundations and media impact funds in specific communities, collaborations that are forming in certain regions that are supported by local philanthropy. So I think it's going to take all of us um, 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 to, to, to solve the problem. And I think it's happening, like I said, in, in, in various places, at least throughout the state of California, we're seeing that. Yeah, we're seeing like a lot of collaborations and stuff as well, where people recognize it's like, well, actually, we can't. We want to serve our local audiences and we can't do it alone. So what can we do if we actually kind of come together? I want to transition to um, some questions from the audience. Thank you to everyone who's online and um, sending you through incredibly thoughtful. Um, someone did actually send through a question about um, raising money and, and revenue. So Sarah Beth and, and Paula, I think you've handled that. But I think this is a really interesting question that we have here. So it says, could you talk about how local social, social media groups and apps like Nextdoor are filling a local news void and the issues that that raises. I know where I live, our next door is very active, both in stuff that is useful, but can help, you know, kind of local neighbors get groceries and what have you. And there's some stuff on there that you're like, hmm, I'm not sure that that's been fact-checked. So um, Paulette, maybe you'd like to, <laughs> to take that, Sarah Beth and Anne, um, and jump in as you like. So yeah, the, the role of the likes of next door and kind of and those kind of apps and what they mean for local news yeah i i know there's some partnerships that um uh, and it, once again those are like you know like platforms like like facebook like twitter um but it's you know geographically targeted to your community and like you said I, i'm seeing the same thing um in in my next door so it would be you know maybe a, a, a headline from public information officer in you know the county which is great so it's like some, you know, some news that we need to know. Um, I know there are some partnerships with media outlets. So I think there's some experimentation that's happening that's interesting. Um, but like you said, there's still things that aren't vetted. Um, uh, and you know, it's, it's, you know, it's like, uh, like a WeChat channel where it could be good information. It could you know, be information that's false, um, that's, that's being spread. Um, so I think we're gonna see the same type of you know, challenges with, with those kind of platforms that we're seeing with, with you know, traditionally with social media. I'll just add, you know, Joanne, your very first question was, what's your definition of local news? And I said specifically original reporting. I mean, there is a lot of things. The internet in some ways, obviously, it's completely disrupted the industry and caused a lot of the crises that we're in. But it also, the silver, I mean, the silver lining here is that it's also going to make it much cheaper to build back the future of local news. Because mm. there are a lot of aspects that the, the former newspapers played in our communities that aren't necessary. Um, you know, restaurant reviews, movie reviews. Sure, some local news outlets may choose to do that. There's a new um, wonderful news outlet in Oakland called the Oakland Side that, that has a bunch of reporting on local newspaper, uh, local restaurants, and that's great. But the next door and apps like that do provide some information that a newspaper doesn't need to do. But folks posting on a next door community are not reporters. They're not picking up the phone call to fact check and ask questions. They're not digging into the details of, you know, documents of whether or not that's accurate or inaccurate. And so I, I would say that the certainly Nextdoor and, and apps like that have a really, they're obviously negative effects, but also positive effects to keeping communities informed. It's not the same thing as original reporting. Yeah. I want to jump in with another question. Um, and I think I'll direct this one to you, let me just kind of move off of my 
screen here. Let me just scroll down. Here we go. Why is there so much pushback towards the idea of government funding of local news if we could set proper checks and balances on it? Yeah, I, I, I don't um, know why there's that um, pushback. And I think a lot of people are worried that it's going to have government uh, having an impact on what is covered. But I don't really believe that's true if the, if the local news or even statewide news um, media uh, is funded through government. And I think it should be, in fact. I think there's a number of things that we should do um, as a government. For example, I mean, because all of this problem of the economics of um, particularly local newspapers came because of social media. I think that what we see though is that social media is now also aggregating content from other places. And I think they should have to be assessed a fee by government. Um, I also think that local governments um, should have some kind of a set aside um, because they advertise in the newspaper often. Um, and can, and they should have a set aside for um, doing it in the local press and in the minority press as well, the, the uh, more ethnic press as well, in Spanish and in all of the different media. Um, but I, you know, we could also be giving a tax, having a tax on the advertising that they have on social media. Look, the government always has done um, certain legislation to impact uh, independent companies and the like um, for the public interest. And that's what they should be doing now. And I, I would advocate for that. And I think they should definitely um, have a part in it together with the other funders that you're talking about. Yeah, and can I just add what, what Ann mentioned, like the local uh, local government fund, uh, advertising dollars. There was a, just a recent report. Um, the um, Center for uh, Community Media in New York um, had worked with um, um, uh, the mayor's office, and um, they've they've directed a certain amount of advertising, city advertising, to um, ethnic, especially ethnic uh, media in the state in the in the city. Um, and so they just, you know, just released a report on how successful, you know, that has been. And, and I know other, other cities and other uh, states like California are looking, looking to that. Um, that was, you know, something for, um, in California that really helped ethnic media sector was just the recent, you know, uh, advertising um, with the census and how much of it was directed to um, um, media outlets um, that were in community instead of digital you know, advertising or, um, um, you know, outdoor advertising, but, but real focus on uh, activating the, the, the community and um, ethnic media as, as, um, as trust, like I said, trusted messengers in their, in their community and, and with, with, with much success when we look at, you know, our, our um, self-response rate here in California. Mm -hmm. um, another question actually that probably just to Paulette and Sarah, I think just some stuff that you were talking about with um, Oceanside and um, with Outlier, um, but one audience question says, you know, how do we handle racial or gender, gender orientation divisions that divide local communities and other demographics influencing news outlets focused or slant? 
um, Paulette, do you want to jump on that? Can you repeat it? Yeah. <laughs> How do we handle racial or gender orientation divisions that divide local communities and other demographics influencing news outlets focused or slant? Focused or, or, or slant? Slant. Sorry, I'm not I'm saying it with my British, my British accent. Slant. 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 <laughs> Go ahead, Paulette. <laughs> I know. I, I, um, <laughs> uh, I think that we're seeing some, I, I mentioned a little, like collaborations that are happening um, in, the, in the media space where uh, we're, we're working together more. It's, and I think that that's, that's one of those opportunities where we can deal with some of the racial divisions, that things that have divided us in the past um, um, that... Uh, we're not seeing as, as, as much as we should, I think, in terms of um, ethnic media and, and others collaborating, but we're trying to develop that with these uh, media tables in, within, within region. Where we're working across culture um, and we're trying to kind of uh, tear down some of those divisions by looking at what some of the, you know, what are the priority area, what are the priority issues in a specific community and how can we all work to help in our reporting you know, um, to solve those problems. So I think those, some of those collaborations that are happening um, statewide, are, it may be one of, those, one of those ways that we can deal with that, uh, with that problem. Yeah, I'll just add, I mean, we can't just be nostalgic for what was in local news. Like local news has to do a much better job of reflecting the diversity of its communities. And that means building newsrooms that are reflective of those communities having newsrooms that have a culture and environment that allows those reporters that reflect the diversity to identify stories that um, are about the diversity of communities, of different communities. And the other is we have to set up newsrooms that are really listening to their audience and directing their edi editorial accordingly. I mean, one of the newsrooms that we helped launch in West Virginia is a newsroom called Mountain State Spotlight. It's now the second largest newsroom in West Virginia. And some of the most extraordinary local reporters in West Virginia have founded this newsroom. Um, and they just recently this week put out an email calling to all of their, a survey to all of their readers to give them advice on as the new legislative session opens up, what do you want to hear? What do you want to learn? And, you know, this is a place where one of the elected state legislators stormed the Capitol a couple of weeks ago. Like, you know, this is, but they're going to listen to their readers and they're going to use that to inform their, their editorial choices. And I think that can begin to address the um, questions that the question, questioner asked. Yeah, and we, and we see that at stations like here in, in California, the brilliant work that Ashley Alvarado is doing at KPCC is very much about that. It's like, even with COVID, it was like, you know, there's a lot of information, but what information do you actually need? And let that actually kind of drive, you know, what it is, uh, the, the journalism that is being done. And thank you, Sarah, that actually addresses a question that someone here had put in the, put in the channel. Um, we, we have just around about five minutes or so left. I wanna make sure that we get to, to this question. Um, what role might individual writer-centric platforms like Substack play in local journalism. And the writer says, I'm imagining a subscription that promises one to two high quality local stories per week. But yeah, that, that, that's kind of, again, we've been talking a lot about platforms in different places that people can get their information. 
what role does Substack and a medium and, and kind of other platforms like that play as we think about local news? And I think raise a hand because I think any of you could actually take, <laughs> take this question. I can give it a try. Um, I, th I think there is definitely a role for platforms like that. It is true that the, that I go back to the original reporting that most of, you know, most of Substack newsletters right now are not original reporting. They're either aggregating or they're, you know, um, opinions or thoughts or, um, and, and there is some, and I think there's potential for that. I also lean into a belief that local reporting and building local newsrooms is a team sport that writers need editors and that you need the engines to be able to really listen to your community and guide your community. Um, so I think this is a both and there are platforms like that that are giving, you know, individual reporters a way to make revenue through their newsletters is great and, and that will uh, sustain more journalists across the country, but we also really do need to be supporting newsrooms that are anchoring communities and are holding themselves accountable for providing the news and information that communities need. So that's you know, and I, I would, you know, I'd add, you know, just something going back to something we were talking about media literacy and, and, you know, you mentioned, Sarah Beth, you mentioned like uh, uh, opinions and for people to really understand the difference between opinions and original reporting um, and going back to, to what Ann said about like the journalistic principles, even understanding what journalism is. And I think we have to figure out how to help educate, you know, our communities on that. Um, Cause I think that until we can get that piece fixed, we're still gonna have this huge problem. Yeah, we have literally just a, a few minutes before we close, but we don't wanna leave it all kind of doom and gloom because it's not, there is a place and much need for, for local news. So I want you all to kind of take um, probably about 45 minutes to a minute just to kind of talk about what you see as kind of one solution as we in local news really try to, to kind of tackle this issue of disinformation, misinformation. Um, Anne Ravel, I'm going to start with you. What's the solution that you see as we try to, to tackle this really huge issue? You know, I think one of the reasons that local news and and news outlets are so well respected is because they are transparent. And one of the problems that we have in social media and also in some of the um, bigger outlets is there isn't that transparency. And that is the one thing. And I know that Sarah Beth was talking about trust in government, which and institutions, which is something I care deeply about, that's gonna make the difference. It's when local news is, because of all the way we're gonna be funding it, uh, is going to be back um, with a vengeance. And trust me, it shouldn't be next door because I've seen some really terrible things on next door. But uh, you know, I, I think that once, once it gets rehabilitated, it's really going to make a huge difference in our community and have people feel more trust, more, as, as was said, more voting, more civic engagement. So there is a, a good light at the end of the tunnel, I think, uh, for our country, if there's more of that trust from local news. Thank you. Um, Paulette? Yeah, I, um, I think for me, bright, bright spots is I see um, people have identified it as an important um, aspect of our civic life that we need to support. 
And, you know, across the board, there is, um, I think, support to provide resources from, from the local donor to the large philanthropies. Um, and so that's for me, like just seeing that the, the um, current um, interest in supporting the sector um, is the bright spot. And, um, you know, going into, uh, for me personally, last year, we, we did quite well with grant funding because, you know, COVID was a challenge. Um, conversations of, of, of racial justice and equity was a huge topic. And so, you know, we saw for BIPOC, especially um, media outlets, just, you know, funding to support our work and help us um, look towards the future um, and support the work of the future. So I'm, I'm, I'm excited about, and for me, you know, the, the current interest in, you know, finding the solutions um, and even at the government level, you know, you know, funding, government funding, philanthropy, and then, and then of course donors. But I'm, I'm excited about what I'm seeing um, when it comes to funding and supporting uh, journalism, local journalism. Sarah Beth. Yeah, I'll, I'll echo a lot of what both of my colleagues have said, but just to say, you know, in this last election cycle, we spent $14 billion on the election cycle, more than we've ever spent on any election. If we take a small portion of that energy and place it into the basic civic infrastructure of our communities, we could make a real dent in this. So I think, you know, there, there is a new generation of nonprofit newsrooms. There are public radio stations that are really leaning into original reporting. There are, there is a lot of, there is a lot out there. And I think, you know, philanthropists who can should lean in hard. Individuals should be making their monthly donations. Um, and there, there is real potential to build this civic infrastructure back up. Well, we're, we're at our hour. This is a great way to spend a, a lunchtime and my kid also stay quiet for the hour, which was absolutely fantastic. I mean, there's so much to discuss around kind of local news, the future of, um, I think as always, we'll always, always encourage anyone that's out there listening or watching this on the replay, um, support your local media in whatever way that you can read, share responsibly, support financially if, if you can. Um, you know, send a letter to the editor, like we can read them, we promise. Um, but before we go, we just want to say a really big thank you to our guest for today, Paulette Brown-Hine. She's the founder of Voice Media Ventures, among many other titles that, that she holds. Also, Anne Ravel is an attorney and professor at UC Berkeley Law, also just one of many titles that she holds. And also Sarah Beth Berthman, um, the CEO of the American Journalism Project. Um, thank you all just so much for a very insightful conversation. It's been a real pleasure to speak with all of you. Um, thank you to Zocalo and the Center for Social Innovation at the University of California, Riverside for presenting this conversation. And of course, to our audience this afternoon um, for your really great and, and thoughtful questions. I, obviously, our democracy is in good hands um, with everyone kind of doing their part. Um, you can read a summary of our conversation at Zocalo's website um, tomorrow, along with some short interviews um, with all of our guest speakers today. But for now, again, thank you so much for joining us and please do enjoy the rest of your afternoon. Bye.